0: Well, is your heart's expectant, believing that the Lord knows what you need and that he's going to speak through your pastor, give him utterance, the very things you're, you're needing answers on, that he wants to get that across to you. So be in faith for that. Be praying and believing that God would give your pastor the right scriptures, the right illustrations, because he knows what we need and he wants us to have what we need. Amen? All right. Pastor?
1: Good evening. Once again, we are privileged to be counted among the children of God. And it's a privilege that sometimes we become a little accustomed and too familiar with, isn't it? We begin to take it for granted. And so... Let's not take it for granted. Let's not allow our comfortable lifestyle and all the privileges that we have in this nation to lull us to sleep. So, someone say, I'm awake. awake. Awesome. If you would just stand up with me tonight, eventually you'll get to sit down. But I want to pray some things out and I want to lead you in some prayers and just a repeat after me prayers, if you will. Some of them are going to be out of scripture and and just some things that come up in my spirit. And, you know, I remember when I first got a hold of truth that hearing Apostle Dale say that you are the best preacher you'll ever hear. And I remember the first time I, I heard that, I was like, I'm afraid to talk in public. What do you mean? And that wasn't the kind of preacher he meant. Right? he's talking about the sound of your voice speaking the truth coming from a heart of belief is the greatest thing for your ears to hear it settles it it enforces it within your spirit when you speak out the truth when you pray out the truth when you find scriptures and pray those scriptures out over yourself over your family there is a, a how would I say faith comes by Hearing and hearing the Word of God. So as you confess the Word of God, as you pray the Word of God, a faith wells up on the inside of you, that those things would be accomplished. And so don't... You know, there's some things in life that are good to farm out to someone else. Right? You know, if you don't have time to clean your house, well then hire someone to have it done. That's great. Now you don't have to do it. Prayer is not one of those things. It's great to request prayer, sure, but don't expect other people to carry you in prayer. When you have the ability to talk to the creator of the universe. The one who has personally made you family with him. And so you have an audience with him. So let's just, let's just pray and, and um, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite you to start repeating after me at some point. Father, we present ourselves here tonight to You, and I just ask You that You would lead us by Your Spirit tonight, and that You would direct every part of this night. And Holy Spirit, I invite You to come in and upon us, and fill us fresh and anew, and I thank You for doing that. I thank You that You said if we'd ask, we would receive. So Lord, I'm asking tonight, and I believe that we have received in the name of Jesus. So just repeat after me if you would, Father God... I present myself before you. I am yours. I am not my own. I invite you to fill me with your spirit, with revelation, with understanding, that I might know the things I need to know, that you would awaken within me your desires, and that my desires would be set aside. I surrender myself to you. And I say, have your way. In me, and through me, I am yours, I am not my own. Father, I pray that you would give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. I pray that my eyes and my heart would be enlightened, so that I might know what is the hope of your calling. What is the wealth of your glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards me who believes according to the working of your mighty strength. I pray that you would grant me according to the riches of your glory to be strengthened with power in my inner being through your Holy Spirit. And that Christ would dwell in my heart through faith I pray that I would be rooted and firmly established in love and that I would be able to comprehend what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that I might be filled with all the fullness of you, Lord. Now, to you, Father, who is able to do above and beyond all that I could ask or think, according to the power that works in me, to you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. I'm asking that I would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that I might walk worthy of you, Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of you, that I would be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might, so that I might have great endurance and patience. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled me to share in the inheritance of light. Amen. Let's just say this. I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am the head. I am not the tail. I am blessed because He said so. I'm blessed when I go out. I'm blessed when I come in. I'm blessed in the field. I'm blessed in the house. I'm blessed in the street. I'm blessed at Walmart. I'm blessed everywhere I go. Because the favor of God resides upon me. And His Spirit is within me. I have been made more than a conqueror. And I yield to no thing thing that that comes against... Comes against what? Yeah, the light of God in me. You know, every thought that comes up against you, against the knowledge, Scripture says against the knowledge of Christ in you, you take that captive to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I thank You That You have given us authority in our words. And so right now, I just bind every demonic spirit, every lying spirit that has come and tried to deceive or convince or influence any one of us here tonight. I break that power, or anyone listening by the internet, I break that power in the name of Jesus. And I loose upon you a spirit of truth and understanding in the mighty name of Jesus. Someone say, I am free. Hallelujah! Alright, you may be seated. I say, well, last, night, last week was strange. We came and had such a strange service. Now this week, we came and preached to ourselves. <laughs> Hallelujah! There's no better way than to, be, to stir yourself up. Remember David... He comes to his hometown with his mighty men and the place has been burnt to the ground, everyone taken captive. And they'd like despair of life. And they spend days weeping about this. And it says David took it says the mighty men were talking about stoning him. I mean, this is his guys. They've all turned on him and thinking it's somehow his fault. And it says that he went and encouraged himself in the Lord. Encouraged himself in the Lord. How does one encourage themselves in the Lord? Like what we just did right here. Use your voice and use your heart and speak out the promises of God in regards to you. I am more than a conqueror. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And you encourage yourself. And pretty soon, when you begin to do that, You stop comparing yourself to the giant and you start comparing the problem, the giant, to your God. Right? Amen. That was worth you coming out tonight, right there. Listen, faith is voice activated. There's a lot of things voice activated anymore. Say, hey, Google, half of your phones are listening now. Faith is voice activated. All right? So you just say, hey, faith, and you begin to speak, and faith, you speak the Word of God, and faith is absolutely going to come and fill you up, and you're going to be different than you were moments before. Tonight we have a strange topic and a strange subject, and a number of you are likely to feel uncomfortable by the time we're through tonight which i think is great you know he's called the god of all comfort but did you know that your comfort zone is not your god and if you have never questioned what you believed enough or to the point where you've become uncomfortable you need to begin asking yourself some questions if we love truth then we're willing to always examine it and go back and look at it again and go back and look at it again Truth doesn't need a defender. Did you know that? Truth doesn't need a defense. It'll stand all by itself, without or with or without you. But you can choose to stand with it. And so in this house, one of the things that we have um, through the years that, that if, if you've gotten anything in this house, I hope, I believe, that you have a greater love of truth than you did when you first arrived here. And we've been... Um, there's been, you know, we've joked around about it and people sometimes make fun of me about how many scriptures that I use in our sermons. Some people, they, they really like it because they like that it's not opinion-based, it's scriptural-based. And so we sometimes laugh about it. How many, you know, how many scriptures were used in the sermon? I think tonight's probably going to be a record. We're going to do the equivalent of reading the book of Daniel. That's not what we're doing. But Daniel has 358 verses And um, I went and I chose tonight all the verses. I added them all up and it's 357 verses. So maybe we'll throw in an extra one somewhere just so we can say it's like the book of Daniel. I have to say this. I, I think I'm one of the most optimistic people that I know. Optimistic preachers I know. Because like I can compile two weeks worth of sermon and think, oh yeah, I can get that in in an hour you know that that should be enough that 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 should fill the time and i come and like you got into the first bit of it and that was it you know so i I've, I've been working on that and getting my time frames right and so what we have tonight is i'm going to answer one of these question cards that we had and i thought okay yeah we'll we'll answer the question and then we'll get into romans and into the series that we've been on and by the time i compiled the answer i realized no, nah, we're just going to be here tonight and we're not going to get into Romans chapter 9, like I had hoped. So let's believe God for for next week for that to be. I do believe that we are going to be in Romans tonight, just not in the sequential order that we have been, because this is not a study in the book of Romans. But we're going to use scriptures out of Romans to uh, end our, our study tonight. So the question tonight that comes on this question card, if you're not familiar with these cards, you can find them on the table in the back. And um, it simply says this on the inside. Biblical answers to your everyday life questions. Have you ever had a question that, man, I wish I could ask this? Or I wonder what pastor would say about this? Or I wonder what others would think. What about this question? Sometimes they're, you know, really deep questions and into theology and all that. And then other times it's just weird questions. Like, did Adam and Eve sleep before the fall? I don't know. You know, did they get tired? I don't know. They rested. But did they need sleep? I don't know. So that's not the question tonight. And I, on this card, if you're unfamiliar with it, I'm just going to read the whole card so that you know how this works. It says, for the benefit of everyone, we invite you to ask a question or give a praise report. Now, these cards are not for to ask a pastor personally a question. Um, some of these questions are going to be answered publicly, and some won't be answered And I remember there was one question that was asked that I came on three separate occasions prepared to answer that question that night. And each time the Lord stopped me, wouldn't let me. So finally I went to the individual that had asked the question and went over it personally with them and explained that, look, I've not been avoiding your question. I just, the Lord didn't let me answer it for whatever reason publicly. And so more than anything else, we want to get it right and please the Lord in the questions we answer. So not every question gets answered from the front Um, but many of them do. And so then it has a blank where you can put down your question or a praise report and a date, and you can put them in the offering basket or give it to an usher. It says, these questions are intended to be shared and answered publicly at the pastor's discretion. Now, there's a box that you can check that says, my name may be shared publicly, or please keep my name anonymous. And in this case, our question comes to us tonight by Castor. And he said we could share his name publicly, so I'm going to do that. And he asks this question, is it always wrong to lie and or deceive? Is it always wrong to lie or deceive? Now, Castor, I'm going to talk to you first. Everyone else can listen in. On the surface of it, many believers would read this question and think, what's wrong with Castor? Of course, it's wrong to lie. Bible's full of Scripture telling us not to lie. Surely he knows that. But here's what I know about you, Castor. You are a thinker. And one of the things I like about you and that I appreciated about you is that you'll take a matter and you'll examine it and you turn it over and that you love truth. And more than anything else, you want truth. And so this question doesn't come from the simplicity of how we teach our children not to lie. This question goes deeper than that and is actually brought up, because he and I have had personal conversation about this, is brought up because of some examples that we see in Scripture. And we've got plenty of Scripture that speak to the issue of lying. So is it always wrong to lie and or deceive? So what I'm going to do is tonight I'm going to read you many, many, many Scriptures. And I'm going to start with the obvious one. That talk about how lying is wrong. And I'm going to start in, in Proverbs chapter six. I used to be extremely black and white on this subject, and um, I viewed I, I'll tell you a story. <clears throat> so I'm traveling the other side of the world somewhere. I've got another minister with me, and the minister is telling me how they used to smuggle Bibles into behind the Soviet cur- or the, the Iron curtain. And into the Soviet Union. And he's telling me stories about how they would take this van and, well, they would smuggle Bibles in. And, um, of course, they'd be asked if they had Bibles and so they would tell them no. And um, they would take, they, they took this van and they took, it put a false bottom in the floor of it. And put a conveyor belt system down in the floor of this van. And you'd take out the driver's seat and they'd place Bibles down into the conveyor belt and it would like shuffle them back all the way in the inside of this van on the inside of the floor. And then um, they would drive through the border and then they would, on the other side, take the seed out and get all the Bibles out. And that's how they were smuggling Bibles in. But every time they would come in, they'd always be asked if they have anything illegal, any contraband, any blah, 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 blah. No, 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 you know, we're tourists, we're here to see our friends and all these things. And So he's telling me this story and I'm like, well, how could you lie to them? I mean, I'm traveling with this guy and I'm starting to rethink this whole thing. Maybe I should send him home, you know. I'm traveling with him and he's just willing to lie about getting these bibles into another country and so i asked him i said well h- how do you justify how do you how do you feel okay with just l- saying a lie to them and so we had a conversation around it and that got me to considering some things that i hadn't thought of before so well maybe i've been too harsh on some people maybe i've maybe i've judged them in a way that i ought not have and you know, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this, and I'm sure the Lord will forgive them for taking all those Bibles in and all those people getting saved, but, you know, you know, and I'm just looking at this issue and I'm trying to weigh it out according to Scripture, because how many know that we're going to read some things tonight that appear to contradict each other, but I'm here to tell you there are no contradictions in the Word of God. There's only things you don't understand yet, All right. So when you find one thing that seems to say this and another that seems to say this, they're not contradicting each other. We've just discovered, you know what, we don't have full light and understanding of how these work together yet and how they mesh together. And so I've been taught by by Brother Keith Moore by listening to his sermons that when you find something you don't understand in Scripture is to, when you find a verse, go back and read the verse that comes before it. Read the verse that comes after it. Keep expanding it get context, and you'll begin to understand. And then the next thing we do, and I was taught this by Apostle Dale, is examine the Word through the light of other Word, of other verses, of other Scripture. So if you find one verse, now, well, go find it in other places. What does the Bible have to say on this subject through other verses? Because Peter said this, he said, people twist the Scripture to their own destruction. You know, you can take one verse... You could take the verse that says all Israel will be saved and say, okay, fine. I don't ever have to uh, do any witnessing to someone who is of Jewish descent because the Lord's going to save them with or without me, so it doesn't matter, right? But that would not be God's plan. And so we would be twisting it to our destruction. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at scriptures that speak to this issue. Some will seem to be like um, you'll see some examples that oppose what we would teach, what we would say. And what I want to to do more than anything else tonight, that when we go home, that you love truth even more, that you have a personal commitment to be a person of integrity with the Lord, and that you love Him more than anything else. Okay, God is love and God is truth. And that when you go home tonight, you'll be able to say, you know what, I'm going to follow what I get on the inside from the Lord. Alright? Alright. How many would agree that the Word is an authority in our life? Absolute. Alright, let's go over to Proverbs 6 and I'm going to begin reading. <clears throat> in Proverbs 6 and chapter 12. Now, there's lots of scriptures I'm going to go to. You don't have to follow along. Some of them will be on the screen Uh, Many of them probably will not be, but there's whole chapters that I'll read at times. But in Proverbs 6, verse 12, it says, A worthless person, a wicked man, goes around speaking dishonestly, winking his eyes, signaling, signaling with his feet, and gesturing with his fingers. He always plots evil with perversity in his heart. He stirs up trouble. Therefore, calamity will strike him suddenly, He will be shattered instantly beyond recovery. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to Him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. Someone who makes strife. Here are a few other single verses that I'll read to you. In Proverbs twelve twenty two. if you're taking notes, it says, Lying lips are detestable to the Lord, but faithful people are His delight. Lying lips are detestable to the Lord, but faithful people are His delight. Exodus 20, verse 16, this is the sixth commandment. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. That would mean, like in their court system. In Leviticus 19, verse 11, this is the rules that he gave to the Levites. He said, do, well, to the Levites and to all of the children of Israel, do not steal, do not act deceptively or lie to one another." <clears throat> in Zechariah 8:16 reading it out of the uh, new king james it says these are the things you shall do speak each man the truth to his neighbor give judgment in your gates for truth justice and peace in other words your courts should be based on truth on justice and peace and each person should be truthful with his neighbor in fact in ephesians 425 this is sort of paraphrased by Paul he says therefore put away lying speak the truth each one to his neighbor because we are members of one another and going further into the new covenant new testament um, scriptures that we have online in Revelations 21 verse 8 in the NIV it says it this way but the cowardly or the fearful the unbelieving the vile the murderers The sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Notice all of these are listed in the plural as though it's their lifestyle. This is what they were known for. Colossians 3 verse 8 through 10 says this, But now putting away all the following, or put away all the following, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Now here we see this, apparently the old self, all those things we're supposed to put away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, Um, filthy language and lying are all part of the old nature but we've been born again with a new nature and in this new nature made after the image of our creator we know that the word says it's impossible for God to lie so that's what we've been made after right in first timothy chapter one verses eight through eleven it says we know that the law is good provided one uses it legitimately We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. This is what Paul is saying to Pastor Timothy. So, we know that Scripture multiple times says God cannot lie or that it's impossible for God to lie. One of those times is found in Hebrews 6.18 for the note takers, um, impossible for God to lie. Versus, Here's a scripture that's opposite talking of the devil. So my point is, is we speaking of the nature of God. God is love, and it's impossible for God to lie. That's who he is. Now, here's who the devil is, right? Jesus said in John 8, 44, he says, You are, he was talking to the to the Pharisees and the Jews that were picking a fight with him. He says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. So here we see that Satan, that's his nature versus God's nature of love and truth. Now, one of the things that we've done in our house is we take it very seriously when One of our children lie. Everything comes to a stop right then and there. Everything gets put on hold. I don't care if we're getting ready to go somewhere, what's going on. Everything comes to a stop. We want them to understand that it is extremely a serious thing to be lying and that it is absolutely not tolerated. And so when we come across that, we don't wink at it. We don't find it funny. You know, were you eating cookies? No. Well, you know, there's cookie crumbs all over their face. they got chocolate all over their hands. And it's, it's almost comical because it's so obvious you did and you think you can lie and get away with it. But it's not funny. It's not funny. And I would highly recommend don't laugh. If you're going to laugh, go in the closet and do it where they're not going to see you for sure. But treat it for what it is. Bring them into correction and into obedience on it and help them to understand the way forward. Okay, And the way out of that is repentance and is by telling the truth. Listen, if you have a problem with lying, here's the way to, to cure yourself of that. The instant you tell a lie and you realize it, you stop right there and correct it. So no, that wasn't true. This, and then you tell them the truth. And yeah, it'll be a little bit humbling. But you know what? It's not going to weigh on your conscience because you corrected it. And number two, you'll get tired of doing that and it'll cure you from lying. You'll just start telling the truth because it's easier. I remember listening to Jerry Clower and he would talk about Marcel Ledbetter. How many know who Jerry Clower is? Anyone? Oh, man. One person? Jerry Clower was a Baptist preacher who turned comedian and he would tell these redneck stories from the South. And one of these guys' his name was Marcel Ledbetter and he would... Of course, as a comedian, he would exaggerate like crazy in all these stories. But he said that Marcel would climb a tree to get to tell you a lie when he could have just stood on the ground and told you the truth. So he went out of his way to lie. That's what we would call a liar, right? They're A habitual liar. In Scripture, we see three types of lies that are strongly condemned by the Lord. Three types of lies. The first one is bearing false witness against someone. We have many, many, many verses in Scripture. In fact, I mentioned earlier that we, we interpret Scripture through the light of other Scripture. We understand Scripture by looking at it through the lens of other verses that speak to the issue. Well, one of the ways that we establish whether something is doctrinal or not is are there more than one witness in the Scripture in regards to it? You know, is it just mentioned, mentioned one time? Well, that's not going to be a doctrinal thing. But is it mentioned multiple times? Take, for example, the, uh, the blood of Jesus forgiving all sin. Yeah, it's all over through Scripture. That's a doctrinal issue, right? One that we would die for because our very life depends on it. So the first lie that I mentioned was bearing false witness against someone. So we have many witnesses in Scripture that speak to this. And what that was is when someone would go into the court system and falsely testify against that person. And it's not true. I mean, this is major, major wrong. People were supposed to be put to death if they did such a thing. I mean, this was like, God did not mess around with that. The second one that we have many references to is deceiving for personal gain or profit. Deceiving for... Our benefit in some financial way. You know, an example of many scriptures that speak to this would be Proverbs 11.1. 1. It says dishonest scales are detestable to the Lord. By an accurate but an accurate weight is his delight. So a scale that's dishonest and is essentially stealing from them, right? because it's, it's not the true value of what they're getting, because they would put whatever you're buying on this side, and then the, the mate weight that it's measured against on this side, and if it's a dishonest weight, then you could charge them for more than they were actually purchasing. In, in today's way of doing that would be if you're, because this happened to me, I had a uh, 1986 Chevy truck, and it had two gas tanks, one on each side, and both tanks would hold 15 point some gallon of fuel and I knew exactly how much each tank held because I would regularly run one tank out and then I would switch to the other one and use that one and so I would fill up a tank and then I would I would know exactly how much the empty tank held right and filled them up hundreds and hundreds of times pump after pump after pump would put in the exact same amount and then one day I come to a pump and I put in like three gallons more than the tank even holds well, we have a dishonest measurement here, don't we? So I go in and I talk to them and they wouldn't do anything about it, and, which was another story. So eventually I walked away. But my point is that would be how a dishonest weight could look today, right? Or if you're buying a pound of something and they cheat you on it. So that's deceiving for personal gain or profit. And then the third lie that's a big deal is denying or suppressing the truth about God. Denying or suppressing the truth about God. An example of this would be in 1 John 2.22. It says, who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. In 1 John 5.10 it says, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he does not believe in the testimony God has given about his Son. So, denying the truth. And that, that is a lie that will absolutely condemn you. Then we have all these curious cases in Scripture where lying and deceiving to accomplish the purpose of God or to save lives or for the cause of justice or judgment were permitted and in some cases, listen, even blessed and called righteous by God. What? I know, right? So that's why I'm going to read you scripture rather than trying to, I want you to be clear on something. I am not teaching you tonight. I'm reading to you what the word says and you at the end of the night are not going to be able to say, pastor said I should think this way about it. Nope. Nope. You have to decide how you think about it. All of us have the teacher within us. All right? So I'm going to start by contrasting two cases. The first is going to be the midwives in Exodus 1, so you can hold your finger in both places if you're going with me. Exodus chapter 1, and then the other one is going to be Acts chapter 5. So we'll just look at these as as the jumping off place. Exodus 1 is a story of the Hebrew midwives, and then Acts 5 is a story of Ananias and Sapphira. Probably most of you here know those stories. But in in the event that you don't, we're going to read a little bit about him. So, in the book of Exodus, in the first chapter, is the story of how the Israelites were slaves to the Egyptians, and how Moses is called. And then Moses comes, and and you remember the plagues that happened to Egypt, and Moses leads them out of, of Egypt, and eventually Joshua leads them to the Promised Land many years later. So, back in the beginning, when things were hard for them and they were still slaves... It says in, uh, in verse 15 of Exodus, chapter 1, it says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shapira, and the second whose name was Pua, When you help the Hebrew women give birth, the king, the pharaoh, is ordering this. When you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God. Everyone say, feared God. God. This is a good thing. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Now here's just a side note. When your your government requires ungodly things of you, you are not required to obey that. You obey a higher law, right? And that's what they're doing here. Now, understand, the law had not even been given to them yet. Not the Ten Commandments, none of it. No law that said you can't kill somebody, except God had told Noah, right? God had told Noah that you guys are going to have to give an account for everyone whose life you take. All right, so here he says, The midwives however, I ever feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have, you not done, why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can get to them. Lie. Not the truth. They, if you read the verse before, it says they didn't do what he told them to do. So it wasn't that they couldn't get there. Amazing how suddenly the Hebrew women were stronger than they were the month previous when they were there for every birth. But now suddenly they're so strong they're just popping them out before we get there. lie, okay? So, this is what God thinks about this. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, He gave them families. Interesting. Interesting. Since they feared God, because they feared God, they didn't obey Him and they lied. And because of their actions, God blessed them and said, I'm giving you families. Alright, that's one story. Now are you in Acts 5? Let's look at vastly different results. Vastly different motives. If you, if you have not discovered this yet, you will tonight. But the intentions of the heart are a big deal to the Lord. Here in Ananias 5 and verse 1. Now, just prior to this, there was a guy that had come and sold the field. And he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The church is just fairly new here. There's thousands of people that have just come into the church. And so, this is about one to five years after the day of Pentecost. And so, it says, A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he didn't bring all of it. Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. So we see here that it wasn't, the deal wasn't that any land you sell, you're supposed to bring all of it to them. That wasn't the deal at all. They could have kept it all of it. It was theirs. It belonged to, to them, right? But they decided, let's take it to them and tell him, this is what we sold the land for. See, it's going to make them look good, isn't it? People are going to be like, ooh, ah, look at them they look at what they're sowing into the kingdom. Wow, wow, wow. Peter wasn't having none of it, and the Holy Spirit wasn't either. He says, you have not lied to people. And notice he says, why is it that you've planned this thing in your heart? There's no noble cause here at all. It is only for self-glorification. Why have you, you have not lied to people, but to God. And when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. And a great fear came on all who heard, and the young men got up, the ushers, okay, the ushers got up, wrapped his body, and carried him out, and buried him, so for you here tonight, cemeteries right across the parking lot, they don't have far to go, man, how much more careful would people be to speak the truth if this was happening on the regular, or kind of like that whole liar, liar, pants on fire, one guy says, well, the evening news would be a whole lot more entertaining if that was actually the case, Verse 7, about three hours later, this is amazing that the guy falls over dead and they just carry him out and bury him. They don't even tell anybody. It's like his wife doesn't even know he's dead and he's already in the ground. Like never invited her to the funeral or nothing. About three hours later, his wife came in and not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? She has opportunity right here to save her life and to do a righteous thing. But instead, she says yes for that price. Then Peter said to her, Why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And instantly she dropped dead at his feet. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. So what was the difference? Remember, we're answering the question that was given on the question card. Is it always wrong to lie and or deceive? Well, clearly it was wrong for Ananias and Sapphira because it was self-interest, number one. That was the reason. But there was no reprimand given to the midwives and there was no... um, In fact, it says God blessed them for their actions. So completely the opposite. You know, they weren't killed. In fact, they were multiplied for it. (laughs) So what's the difference? And you may say, well, Ananias and Sapphira were in the New Covenant and they were in the Old Covenant. Yeah, true enough, but God is the same God. He didn't change from then till now. We live under a new covenant, a better covenant, but He's still the same God. Let me, let me pose it to you this way that will help you maybe see that there is two sides to it. How many would agree that murder is wrong? Show of hands. How many would agree that murder is wrong? Okay, most of you, the rest of you. Well... That, that comes from, you know, probably the most famous verse on murder is the sixth commandment, Exodus 20, 13. Do not murder. This is what God said when he spoke to Moses and gave them a law. Do not murder. Or as the King James would say, thou shalt not kill. Do not murder. Is that a law? Well, the ninth commandment says don't bear false witness. Against your neighbor is what it's implying. It really doesn't say lie. but That's often meant, but just don't bear false testimonies, how people use it. But so we have, let's just say it straight up means any type of fib. So we have commands, because later he told the Levites, speak the truth one to another. So there's a command. So we have a command not to murder, and we have a command not to lie. Was ever there a time in Scripture where murder was okay? Yeah, the Bible's full of it. I mean, whole nations were murdered. Women, children, babies, their livestock, all at the command of God. But I thought murder was wrong. Yeah, there's such a thing as judgment too. And it was carried out by His people. So we seemingly have just found a contra- contradiction. And, and in 200 years from now, all of us are going to have like amazing light on this subject. And we'll stand around and we'll talk about this going, Wow! you know how did we not see that more plainly then but in the meantime while we see through a glass darkly what we know is that god is right and he's not wrong and if he commanded them to their lives to be taken then it was for good reason but it was still commanded by him how about capital punishment see in our laws today we would term something murder if it was done unjustly or without reason So if someone breaks into your house and you shoot them and as a result they die, that's not considered murder in our laws today. That would be considered, you know, defending yourself, self-defense. And there's laws for that. In the Old Covenant, they also had laws that if someone broke into your house at night and if you killed them and it was dark, then you weren't held guilty of murder. But if it was daylight and you killed them, then you were. It's also an interesting thing. I suppose that it it was because at night, you know, he couldn't see. So, I don't know. But anyhow, that's beside the point. Right now, what we're looking at is, in in our laws today, we would view murder as unprovoked or undeserving or unjust. And yet, we wouldn't look at capital punishment in our laws as murder. There's no self-defense happening. There's not some fight going on, and they killed the guy... No, they put him in the electric chair. Or they gave him an injection. He wasn't defending himself at all. You guys just put him to death. Well, same way in the old covenant. Stone these guys. If they do this and this and this, stone them. Capital punishment. There's no fight. He's a chosen one of God. Have him be put to death. And so we see here, murder, there's two sides. There's a time to murder and there's a time not to. Yeah, you heard your pastor say that. There's a time for murder and there's a time not. You say, yeah, well, I wouldn't call that murder, you know, if that's in war. Well, maybe the old saying, you know, everything's fair in love and war. I don't know. But at any rate, when he said go out to these nations and kill man, woman, and child, those little babies there, they had done no wrong yet. And their lives were taken. They weren't defending themselves. Their lives were taken at God's command. And I believe there was reason for that. Because, well, I'm not going to get into those reasons or else we'll get sidetracked. But I I very strongly believe that there were purposes behind that. Numbers 25, I'll read. So you see the contrast between Ananias and Sapphira and the Hebrew midwives. There was, one was blessed because of their lie and the other one was judged because of their lie. And the motive of their heart was all the difference. The same way with murder. If you accidentally kill someone while you're working, then what you're supposed to do is run to this town and they'll keep you safe over there. This is Old Covenant. Until the priest dies. And once the priest dies, then they can no longer come and take revenge on you. And you're free to go back home. But if you purposely killed someone while out in the field, now you were going to be held accountable for it and put to death yourself. All right, Numbers 25. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a walk through Scripture. Starting in the beginning and just work our way through. And look at examples in Scripture that are maybe not what we were taught in Sunday school. I told you that you're going to probably be uncomfortable tonight at some point. Numbers 25 and verse 1. While Israel was staying in the Ikea grove, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. The women invited them to sacrifice for their gods, and the people ate and bowed and worshipped their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight, there's murder, before the Lord, so that his burning anger may turn away from Israel. So it's judgment." So Moses told Israel's judges, Kill each of the men who aligned themselves with Baal of Peor. An Israelite man came bringing a Midianite woman to his relatives in the sight of Moses and the whole Israelite community while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he got up from the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the Israelite man into the tent, and drove it through both the Israelite man and the woman through her belly. Then the plague on the Israelites was stopped but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000 the Lord spoke to Moses Phineas, son of Eliezer he's the guy that ran the spear through him son of Aaron the priest has turned back my wrath from the Israelites because he was zealous among them with my zeal so that I did not destroy the Israelites in my zeal therefore declare I grant him my covenant of peace It will be a covenant of perpetual priesthood for him and his future descendants because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Psalms 106 speaks of this very incident. In verses 29, 30, and 31, it says, They angered the Lord with their deeds, and a plague broke out against them. But Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped. It was credited to him as righteousness throughout all generations to come. Straight up murder credited to Him for righteousness. Now, I'm not suggesting anything, but maybe we've been a little bit hard on these people that have gone into Planned Parenthood and done broken the law and hurt people that were murdering other people. See, we have a twisted mindset in our very country that if the law forbids something, well, then there's nothing we can do about it. And again, I'm not suggesting we go into Planned Parenthood and murder the people that are doing these things. But maybe we've judged them a little harshly. And for anyone listening on the internet, nope, don't do it. Alright, let's, uh, let's go turn to Joshua and I'll just talk about an example. We already read about the Hebrew midwives who disobeyed Pharaoh. They lied. God blessed them, gave them families and they multiplied. How about, uh, here's an example. Jacob and his mother Rebekah, they lied to accomplish God's plan. It was prophesied in in Genesis 27 that the elder will serve the younger. And then sure enough, it comes time that that Isaac is going to pronounce his blessing on his firstborn, tells Esau to go out to the field and, you know, prepare this meal and everything. And Rebekah hears it, and so she tells Jacob, hey, here, put this, you know, hide across, hairy goat hide across your arm. So he'll, because Esau was real hairy. He says, so your dad will think it's because his dad was blind. So your dad Isaac will think that it's Esau and then make this, you know, she made this pot of stew and everything and go in and tell him you're Esau. So he goes in and just lies up a storm. And so Esau, he, believed, he says, man, you have the voice of Jacob, but you have the, the feel of Esau, you know. And um, anyhow, he got God's blessing pronounced upon him rather than Esau. And they used a lie to accomplish it. Now I'm not saying that the word doesn't say that was good, neither does it say it was bad. I do think that Jacob reaped a harvest on his lie, because just look at what happens in his life. He goes to Laban, and Laban deceives him and lies to him and pulls him through the keel for 14 years, right? And um, so I think there was a reaping that was happening there. We do reap what we sow, because it wasn't that Jacob wasn't doing this for some greater good. Well, we could say it was a greater good of accomplishing God's plan. Yes, I agree with that. But it was selfish motives. Selfish motives. All right, in Joshua chapter 2, this famous story of Rahab. Joshua chapter 2, I'm going to read the whole thing to you. So Joshua, son of Nun, secretly, everyone say secretly, sent two men as spies, say spies, so by the very nature of what they're doing, they're being deceptive. There's no spy that's like, hey, hey, I'm a spy. I'm here, I'm a spy. No, they don't announce themselves, they hide. What they do is in secret. And Joshua is sending these two spies secretly to see where their weaknesses are and what should we do. And So he sends them in saying, go scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Well, this is getting sketchier by the minute. Imagine that. Take a photo of two ministers on a journey going into a whorehouse. Wait till that gets on social media. Can't judge a book by the cover always. So they go in. It says the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. So they went as spies, but obviously they're bad at it. They were discovered, right? So they're not very good at it. So he says, the king of Jericho sent, verse 3, sent word to Rahab and said, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house. For they came to investigate the entire land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, apparently they knew, apparently she and them, knew that word had gotten out that we're here. So she hides them. Otherwise, if you thought that nobody knew you were here, you'd be like, why are you trying to hide me, right? So they knew. So they're in hiding. So she says, yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And at nightfall, when the city gate was about to close, the men went out, and I don't know where they were going, but chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. The men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as they left to pursue them, the city gate was shut. So there's no coming out or going in. Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. And everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings, you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family, because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them, and save us from death. And the men answered her, We will give our lives for yours. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, since she lived in a house that was built into the wall of the city. So she lets them down over the wall or out of the wall with this rope. Go to the hill country so that the men pursuing you won't find you, she said to them. See, they had went down to the ford. She's saying, go up, so sending them out the opposite direction. Hide there for three days until they return. Afterward, go on your way. The men said to her, we will be free from this oath you made us swear, unless when we enter the land you tie the scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your family Father's family into your house, and if anyone goes out of the doors of your house, his death will be his own fault, and we will be innocent. But if anyone with you in this house should be harmed, his death will be our fault. And if you report our mission, we are free from the oath you made us swear. Let it be as you say, she replied, and she sent them away. After they had gone, she tied the scarlet cord to the window. So the two men went into the hill country and stayed there for three days until the pursuers had returned. They searched all along the way, but did not find them. Then the men returned, came down from the hill country, and crossed the Jordan. They went to Joshua, the son of Nun, and reported everything that had happened to them. They told Joshua, the Lord has handed over the entire land to us. Everyone who lives in the land is also panicking because of us. And you know the rest of the story. They ended up coming across, marched around the city seven days in a row. And the city collapses. They go in, kill everyone, except for the people that were in Rahab's house. Rahab the harlot ends up in Jesus' lineage. Amazing that this woman would be used this way. Now as we read this this story and in answering the question, is it always wrong to lie or to deceive? We could look at this and we could say, well, hold on. Um, It doesn't say that what she did was good. It just tells us the story of what she did. And in the end, the results were good. We could say that except that we actually have new covenant scriptures that pronounce it to be good. So one scripture that talks about this, we know, is out of Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, right? Rahab's name, in verse 31. But it doesn't say that her lie was good. It just simply says, by faith Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. So she had some faith involved. She welcomed them in peace, did not report on them, did not tell on them, said they weren't there, and sent them on their way. In James 2, now remember who's writing this, this is Pastor and Apostle James, who is leading the church in Jerusalem, the Lord's brother. He says, in chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He was contrasting faith and works, and that if you have faith, you'll also have works, and that I'll show you my faith by my works, and he's teaching them this principle And in saying this to them, he said, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Your faith has to have actions. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works? Okay, what were her works? Receiving them, fibbing about it, hiding them, sending them out another way, protecting their lives. That was her works. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works and receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? He's asking a question. Wasn't she considered righteous in doing this? Justified, that's what that means. And then he says the very next verse, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. If Rahab would have said, you know, she, her faith was, that she and her household would be protected and that they would be protected. That was her faith. Her works were lying about it and hiding them and sending them out another way. Some of us would have taken the approach and said, well, I can't lie. Scripture forbids to lie. So I'm just going to tell them the truth and we'll put it in God's hands and He can do a miracle or they can't find them or or." or Hundreds of ways God can can do miracles, right? He could strike these guys dead on the spot. Now nobody knows that they heard the truth where they were. And I suppose maybe if she would have told them God would have done something to intervene, I don't know. But what I do know is it is talking about faith and works and now brings up Rahab the harlot and what she did and her faith and her works. Interesting. How about in wartime? Let's look in Joshua a little further. Let's go to chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8. So this is the story of the conquest of Ai. So now they've defeated Jericho and now they go on to to attack Ai. And well, they were defeated at Ai because there was someone in the camp that had taken some things they weren't supposed to from Jericho. And so they get all that figured out, stone him and his whole family. And so now they're ready to go back and try taking Ai, Ai again. And so they, they prayed and all this stuff and the Lord is directing them. So the Lord says in, in verse 1 of chapter 8, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid or discouraged. Take all the troops with you and go attack Ai. Look, I have handed over to you the king of Ai, his people, city, and land. Treat Ai and its king as you did Jericho and its king. In other words, kill him. Except that you may plunder its spoil and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. What is the very nature of an ambush? Deception. Okay? This is the Lord's command. Do it this way. So verse 3, So Joshua and all the troops set out to attack Ai. Joshua selected 30,000 of his best soldiers and sent them out at night. He commanded them, Pay attention, lie in ambush behind the city, not too far from it, and all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out against us as they did the first time, we will flee from them. They will come after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, oh, they're fleeing from us as before. And while we are fleeing from them, you are to come out of your ambush and seize the city. The Lord your God will hand it over to you. After taking the city, set it on fire. Follow the Lord's command and see that you do as I have ordered you. So everything he's just told them to do is the Lord's command. Follow the Lord's command. So Go out and deploy all these deceptive tactics. Run away from them. Make them think that you're running away. And then when they're chasing you, jump out and get them. Trick them. Hmm. Let's see what happens. Verse 9 so Joshua sent them out and they went to the ambush site and waited between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai but he spent that night with the troops Joshua started early the next morning and mobilized them then he and the elders of Israel led the people up to Ai all the troops who were with him went up and approached the city arriving opposite Ai and camped to the north of it with the valley between them and the city now Joshua had taken about 5000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city The troops were stationed in this way, the main camp to the north of the city and its rear guard to the west of the city. And that night Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw the Israelites, the men of the city hurried and went out early in the morning so that he and all his people could engage Israel in battle in a suitable place facing the Arabah. But he did not know there was an ambush waiting for him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten back by them and fled toward the wilderness. Then all the troops of Ai were summoned to pursue them and they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel, leaving the city exposed while they pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, hold out the javelin in your hand toward Ai, for I will hand the city over to you. So Joshua held out his javelin towards it. And when he held out his hand, the men in ambush rose quickly from their position. They ran and entered the city, captured it, and immediately set it on fire. The men of Ai turned and looking, looked back. Smoke from the city was rising to the sky. They could not escape in any direction. And the troops who had fled to the wilderness now became the pursuers. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the men in ambush had captured the city and that smoke was rising from it, they turned back and struck, they were the ones running away, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then men in ambush came out of the city against them. And the men of Ai were trapped between the Israelite forces, some on one side and some on the other side. They struck them down until no survivors or fugitive remained. But they captured the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing everyone living in Ai who had pursued them into the open country, when every last one of them had fallen by the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the sword. The total of those who fell that day, both men and women, was 12,000, all of the people of Ai. Joshua did not draw back his hand. That was holding the javelin until all the inhabitants of Ai were completely destroyed. Israel plundered only the cattle and spoil of that city for themselves according to the Lord's command that he had given Joshua. Joshua burned Ai and left it a permanent ruin still desolate today. He hung the body of the king of Ai on a tree until evening and at sunset Joshua commanded that they take his body down from the tree. They threw it down at the entrance of the city gate and put a large pile of rocks over it which still remains today. The reason he did that and took them down from the trees because in their law it said that you shouldn't let anyone hanging on a cross overnight because it will bring a curse on the land. So in obeying the law he took him down off the tree. Interesting that they also had law that said don't murder. And yet they just killed everyone in the whole city at God's command. And at God's command pretended a lie in deception drawing them out and killing them. All right, let's uh, let's look at Judges chapter four. Let's go over to the book of Judges, just a couple, a little bit to the right in your Bible if you're following along. Now, this is the story of the prophet Deborah, Jael, and the king Cicero. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, um, but I'm going to read some verses enough through here to give you the idea of what happened. So, in verse one, I'll begin verses. I'll read the first nine verses of Judges 4. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. Now this is in the, in, the, in the time of Judges and they didn't have a king yet. So the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Canaan who reigned in Hazor and the commander of his army was Sisera. I guess Sisera was a commander, not a king who lived in the Hashareth of the nations. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord because Jabin had 900 iron chariots and he harshly oppressed them 20 years. Deborah, a prophetess and wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to settle disputes. She summoned Barak. Son, it's interesting that she was a prophet and was... acting as judge, that, that flies in the face of much of Christianity's viewpoint of women in the church today. Not ours, but it did theirs. She summoned Barak, son of Abinom from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, deploy the troops on Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and Zebulonites." Then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's army and his chariots and his infantry at the Wadi Kishon to fight against you and I will hand him over to you. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. I will gladly go with you, she said, but you will receive no honor on the road you are about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera to a woman. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, if you jump down to verse 13, Sisera summoned all his 900 iron chariots and all the the troops who were with him. And they go down to this this brook. Verse 14, Deborah says to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord threw Sisera, all his charioteers, and all his army into a panic before Barak's assault. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as the... Harosheth of the nations and the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword not a single man was left meanwhile Sisera had fled on foot to the tent of Jael the wife of Heber the Kenite because there was peace between King Jabin of Hazor and the family of Heber the Kenite so they're at peace with this clan so Jael went out to greet Sisera and says to him come in my lord come in with me don't be afraid wow she's putting him under false impressions So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened a container of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him again. Then he said to her, Stand at the entrance to the tent, and if a man comes and asks you, Is there a man here? Say no. While he was sleeping from exhaustion, Heber's wife Jael took a tent peg, grabbed a hammer, and went silently to Sisera. She hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground, and he died. So when Barak arrived in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to greet him and said to him, Come and I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her and there was Sisera lying dead with a tent pegged through his temple. Alright, over in chapter 5, they had this great victory. They write this whole song and, and part of the song includes about Jael. In verse 24, it says, Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. She is most blessed among tent-dwelling women. And it says what she did and how she killed him. So she deceived him and then killed him, and she's the most blessed of women. I mean, like murdered him in his sleep. Like breaking all the rules, and she's the most blessed of women. How about Judges chapter 7? Gideon. Remember the story of Gideon and how he gathers this whole army and they're whittled down to 300 and then there's this he sneaks into the Gideon camp and overhears one of them had a dream and that really inspires Gideon he realizes that man the Lord's given them into my hand and so down in verse 7 of uh, I mean chapter 7 look at verse 16 then he divided the 300 men into three companies So all he has is 300 men and the, and the people of Midian were so many they couldn't be counted it says. They were just covered the landscape. They are outnumbered. I mean like vastly outnumbered. And so then he divided the 300 men into three companies and gave each of the men a ram's horn in one hand. That's like a trumpet so it's going to make a sound. You blow it. Ooh. You know. I want you to be clear on what that is. It's the sound, the call to battle. Okay? Not every person in a battalion carries one. Just the one directing the traffic. He is deceiving. He is going to deceive the entire Midianite army to think there is an innumerable host against them. Each one of these 300 trumpets is going to blow. Each one of these 300 trumpets is supposed to be directing a whole group of men into battle. There is no whole group of men. Each light There's 300 lights. Represents a whole battalion. All right? So here's what he says They're supposed to take the ram's horn in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside of it in the other hand. Watch me, he said to them, and do what I do. And then he came to the outpost of the camp. Do as I do. And when I and everyone with me blow our ram's horns, you are also to blow your ram's horns all around the camp. Then you will say, For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men who were with him, so there are three groups of one hundred, went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. They blew their ram's horns and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. The three companies blew their ram horns and shattered their pitchers. And they held their torches in their left hands and their ram horns to blow in their right hands. And they shouted, The sword of the Lord and for Gideon! Each Israelite took his position around the camp and the entire Midianite army began to run and they cried out as they fled. And when Gideon's men blew their 300 ram's horns, the Lord caused the men and the whole army to turn on each other with their swords and they fled in every direction and fought against each other and were just completely annihilated and by a great act of deception. How about Samson and Delilah? Let's go over to Judges 16 and I'll show you something interesting there. Samson seems to have been an example of many things not to do, but he got some things right. And in Judges chapter 16, we're going to begin reading toward the end of his life in um, verse 4. It says, Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman named Delilah. He's not supposed to be falling in love with the Canaanite woman, but he did who lived in the Sorek Valley. The Philistine leaders went to her and said, Persuade him to tell you what his great strength comes from so that we can overpower him, tie him up, and make him helpless. Each of us will then give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me, where does your great strength come from? How could someone tie you up and make you helpless? Samson told her, If they tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I will become weak and be like any other man. Lie. The Philistine leaders brought her seven fe- fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him up with them. While the men in ambush were waiting in her room, she called out to him, Samson, the Philistines are here. But he snapped the bowstrings as a strand of yarn snaps when it touches fire. The secret of his strength remained unknown. Then Delilah says to Samson, Now, at this point, I don't understand why there's still a Delilah. Just my way of thinking, okay? You tried to just take him out. Why are you still with her? He's not the brightest guy. <laughs> then Delilah says to Samson, You have mocked me and told me lies. Won't you please tell me how you can be tied up? He told her, If they tie me up with new ropes that have never been used, I will become weak and be like any other man. Now I want you to notice that in the midst of all his lies, the anointing of God is still on him. He's still strong. He lies and he wakes up strong. He lies And he wakes up strong, in spite of his lies. It's like ridiculous. So Delilah took new ropes, tied him up with them, and shouted, Samson, the Philistines are here. But while the men in ambush were waiting in a room, he snapped the ropes off his arm like a thread. Then Delilah says to Samson, You have mocked me all along and told me lies. Tell me how you can be tied up. He told her, If you weave the seven braids on my head, apparently it is dreadlocks, I don't know, Maybe Todd White is more biblical than we know. If you weave the seven braids on my head, and by the way, I do think Todd White is biblical. I don't want anyone to take the wrong idea with that. I think he's an amazing man of God, in spite of his hair. I'm like the opposite of Todd White when it comes to hairstyle. If you weave the seven braids on my head into the fabric on a loom, see, he's getting closer to the truth now. He's talking about his hair. She fastened the braids with a pin and called to him, Samson, the Philistines are here. He woke from his sleep, pulled out the pin with the loom and the web. Wow, this is all hanging from his hair. And he goes off and deals with business. How can you say, I love you, she told him, when your heart is not with me? But the bigger question is, how you (laughs) know, anyhow. (laughs) This is the third time you've mocked me and not told me what makes your strength so great. And because she nagged him day after day and pleaded with him until she wore him out, he told her the whole truth and said to her, My hair has never been cut because I am a Nazarite to God from birth. If I am shaved, my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah realized that he told her the whole truth, she sent this message to the Philistine leaders. Come one more time, for he has told me the whole truth the Philistine leaders came to her and brought the silver with them. Now listen, if we would be writing this story today, most of us would write it this way. Because he was truthful, God blessed him. and angels showed up and rescued him in spite of his hair being cut off. That's how we would write it. Because we teach very strongly, do not lie. God hates a lie. It's detestable to him. But since we didn't write it, let's see how they wrote it. So the Philistine leaders came to her and brought silver with them. Then she let him fall asleep on her lap and called the man to shave off the seven braids on his head. In this way she made him helpless and his strength left him not even tied up. Then she cried, Samson, the Philistines are here. When he awoke from his sleep, he said, I will escape as I did before and shake myself free. But he did not know. Everyone say he did not know. That the Lord had left him. The anointing of God was not a feeling. Because he didn't realize it was gone. So it wasn't something that he felt. And interestingly enough, when he tells the truth, is when the Lord left him. And not all the times that he lied. Am I saying that you should lie or it's okay to lie? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm reading you a story. A true story. How about... In the life of King David. Full of examples. Full of examples. Let's go over to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to go a little bit longer tonight. So maybe someone could let our children's ministry just know. And prepare them for that. I'll go as fast as possible here. So this is not David himself. But this is actually the Lord. Directing the prophet Samuel. To mislead. Saul in the entire Israelite people. All right, chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. Samuel asked, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, Take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. And when the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, Do you come in peace? In peace, he replied, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so then they arrive and the whole thing happens where... He goes through all of his sons and he's looking on outward appearances. And God says, don't look on outward appearances. God looks at the heart and then eventually they bring in David and David is anointed king. Now, did Samuel lie to them? No, he only told them half of the truth with the purpose to misdirect and misguide them as to their true intentions. At the Lord's direction. All right, let's go to chapter 20. So this is the story of David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan had made a covenant. They were friends together. But Saul ends up becoming jealous of David because David had killed Goliath and now people were singing David's praises. All these things. And so he tries to kill David and David runs for his life. And David and Jonathan, they come back together and in chapter 20, verse 4, Jonathan says to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. So David told him, look, tomorrow is the new moon and I'm supposed to sit down and eat with the king. That would be Jonathan's dad. Instead, let me go and I'll hide in the countryside for the next two nights. If your father misses me at all, say... David's going to instruct him to lie. Say, David urgently requested my permission to go quickly to his hometown Bethlehem for an annual sacrifice there involving the whole clan. If he says good, then your servant is safe. But if he becomes angry, you will know he has evil intentions. So Jonathan agrees to this. And if you look on down... Verse 27, so the day after the new moon, the second day of the feast, David's place was still empty and Saul asked his son Jonathan, why didn't Jesse's son come to the meal either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered, David asked for my permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go because our clan is holding a sacrifice in the town and my brother has told me to be there. So now if I have found favor with you, let me go so I can see my brothers. That's why he didn't come to the king's table. So Saul becomes angry and they start having this shouting match and he ends up throwing his spear at his own son and Jonathan leaves in a huff. And he goes out to the field, finds David, warns him and and they renew their covenant with each other again and David goes on his way. But we see that they lied. Jonathan lied to protect his friend's life. David lied to protect his own life. But we know that there was a greater purpose in all of it. And that was, I mean, David was pretty instrumental in the kingdom and in what was to come, right? He's in the lineage of Jesus. And so in uh, the next chapter, chapter 21, in verse 1, so David flees from there. He goes to the priest Ahimelech at Nob. Ahimelech was afraid to meet David. So he says to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? And David answered the priest to Himelech, The king gave me a mission. Now remember, he's running away from the king. He's lying. The king gave me a mission, but he told me, Don't let anyone know anything about the mission I'm sending you on or what I've ordered you to do. I have stationed my young men at a certain place. Now, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest told him, There's no ordinary bread on hand. However, there is consecrated bread. But the young men may eat it only if they've kept themselves from women. David answered, I swear that the women are being kept from us as always when I go out to battle. The young men's bodies are consecrated even on an ordinary mission. So, of course, their bodies are consecrated today. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread. Now, this was strictly forbidden when God gave the law to the Levites. Absolutely not allowed. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread For there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from the presence of the Lord. When the bread was removed, it had been replaced with warm bread. One of Saul's servants detained before the Lord was there that day. His name was Doeg the Edomite, chief of Saul's shepherds. David said to Ahimelech, do you have a spear or sword on hand? I I didn't even bring my sword or my weapon since the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine whom you killed in the valley of Elah is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want to take it for yourself, then take it, for there isn't another one here. Oh, there's none like it, David said. Give it to me. Alright, so we're going to come back to there, so you can hold your finger, but I'm going to skip ahead and read to you from Matthew 12 something Jesus said about this incident. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verses 1 through 4, At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. Forbidden on the Sabbath, by the way, in the law. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. See, they're sticklers, letter of the law. He said to them, haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests? So he's using that as an example and a precedent why the disciples could break the law today and eat as they were walking. Doing what was needful. Jacob needed substance and this was the only thing available so they did what was needful. Or today the disciples and Jesus are walking through the field and there's no McDonald's nearby so they're picking off the heads of the grain and eating that. They're doing what's needful. And then later Jesus goes right on and, and he, he says, you know, you guys, um, verse 5, or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had not known if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Because they were condemning the disciples. For the Son of Man is the Lord of Sabbath. So, back to the story here. So Jesus didn't bring up and say, yeah, remember David? That was really shameful how he broke the law and how he lied and how he all these things. No, he actually used it to say why the disciples could do what they were doing. Fascinating. I know that this is not well, we're normally taught. But that means you've just been taught half the truth. You guys are looking at me like a cow at a new gate. What is that? All right, back in Samuel. Um, let's look at verse... Well, actually, before I, I read there, I'm going to jump ahead of chapter to chapter 22 because I want you to see the results of this lie the results of this lot. In, in verse 9 of chapter 22, it says this. Then Doeg, the Edomite, remember he was hiding, hiding there in the, in, the, in the temple or that place there where David had come in and got the bread, he, who was in charge of Saul's servants, answered, I saw Jesse's son come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions. So apparently he'd ask Ahimelech for some direction from the Lord and the Lord gave it to him in spite of his lies and in spite of him eating this bread of the presence. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions. He also gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. The king sent messengers to summon the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family, who were priests in Nob. All of them came to the king. Then Saul said, "Listen, son Ahitub, I'm at your service, my lord." He said. Saul asked him, "Why did you and Jesse's son conspire against me? You gave him bread and a sword, and inquired of God for him, so he could rise up against me and wait in ambush, as as is the case today." Ahimelech replied to the king, who among Who among all your servants is as faithful as David? He's the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and honored in your house. Was today the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Please don't let the king make an accusation against your servant or any of my father's family. For your servant didn't have any idea about all of this. Remember, he thought he was on a special mission for the king. But the king said, You will die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guards standing by, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they sided with David. For they knew he was fleeing, but they didn't tell me. They didn't know. But the king's servants would not lift a hand to execute the priests of the Lord. So the king said to Doag, Go and execute the priests. So Doag, the Edomite, went and executed the priests himself. On that day, he killed 85 men who wore the linen epods. He also struck down Nob, the city of the priests, with the sword. Both men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. However, one of the sons of Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, escaped. His, his name was Abithar, and he fled to David. Abithar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abithar, I knew that Doag, the Edomite, was there that day, and that he was sure to report to Saul. I myself am responsible for the lives of everyone in your father's family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. For the one who wants to take my life wants to take your life. You will be safe with me. So here you see the result of that lie. And he knew about it and he took responsibility for it. All right, back over to... uh, Now, Abithar plays an important role later in David's life. Okay? And more lies. But an important role in David's life later when Absalom chases him out of the, out of the kingdom. So, um, look at chapter in 21. We had stopped reading there about the priest of Nob, but I'll just keep reading in verse 10. David fled that day from Saul's presence and went to king Echish of Gath. But Ichish's servants said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Don't they sing about him during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands? David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Ahisha of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Look, you can see the man's crazy. Etesh said to his servants, Why did you bring him to me? Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? And so he lets him go lets him go because he pretended a lie, something to be true that was not true. Again, we don't have scripture that says, yay for David. It just tells us the story, okay? All right, let's look at chapter 27, some more on David, 27 and verse 7, so David flees to Ziklag, Okay? And it says, the length, that's the Philistines' place. The, the length of the time, verse 7 of 27, the length of the time that David stayed in Philistine territory amounted to a year and four months. David and his men went up and raided the Gishurites, the Gizerites, the Amalekites. From ancient times, they had been the inhabitants of the region through Shur as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he did not leave a single person alive, either man or woman, but he took flocks, herds and donkeys, camels and clothing. Then he came back to... Uh, I can't say his name now. Ichish, the king, who inquired, Where did you raid today? And David replied, The south country of Judah. Little lie. It's not where he was. He's off killing this king's own people and his own clans and his own everything, right? And he's saying, I was your enemies, Judah. And then he named some other places and the south country, and he names two other places. And It says that in verse 11, David did not let a man or woman live to be brought to Gath, for he said, or they will inform on us and say this is what David did. This was David's custom during the whole time he stayed in the Philistine territory. So for a year and four months he's doing this. So, uh, Etish trusted David thinking, since he has made himself repulsive to his own people Israel, he will be my servant forever. At that time, the Philistines gathered their military units into one army to fight against Israel. So Achish said to David, you know, of course, that you and your men must march out in the army with me. David replied to Achish, good, you will find out what your servants can do. So Achish said to David, very well, I will appoint you as my permanent bodyguard. Now, this is the battle where they went out and they fought King Saul and all his men and defeated him and Saul is killed and everything. Now David did not take part in that battle because the other people around were like, are you crazy? We can't trust him. He's still an Israelite. And he's going to turn on us when we go out there in and battle and, and all these things. And the king's like, no, man, he is very, very trustworthy. Boy, he's been fooled, hasn't he? He's very, very trustworthy. He can go with us. And eventually, to save face for the king and everything, David agrees. He says, fine, we'll go away. And they go back to Ziklag to find it burned down. And that's when that whole story happens. And so they go back and capture all their wives and possessions and bring those all back. Alright, let's look further. Let's go to 2 Samuel. Jump ahead here. 2 Samuel 15. This is now late in David's life. Absalom tries, his son, try, very own son, tries to supplant him as king. And so he has gathered a bunch of people together and on his side, and in verse 13, of 2 Samuel 15, I'll begin reading. Then an informer came to David and reported, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all the servants with him in Jerusalem, get up, we have to flee, or we will not escape from Absalom. Leave quickly, or he will overtake us quickly. Heap disaster on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword." The king's servants said to the king, Whatever my lord the king decides, we are your servants. Then the king set out and his entire household followed him. But he left behind ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out and all the people followed him. And they stopped at the last house. All right, jump down to verse 23. Everyone in the countryside was weeping loudly while all the people were marching out of the city. As the king was crossing the Kidron Valley, all the people were marching past on the road that leads to the wilderness. Zadok was also there, and all the Levites with him. Zadok was the priest. were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set, so they were bringing that out of Jerusalem with David. They set the Ark of God down, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until, until the people had finished marching past. Then the king instructed Zadok, the priest, return the Ark of God to the city. If I find favor with the Lord, he will bring me back and allow me to see both it and its dwelling place." However, if he should say, I do not delight in you, then here I am. He can do with me whatever pleases him. And the king said to priest Zadok, look, return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you. Your son Ahimaaz and Abithar's son Jonathan. Remember, Abithar is the son of the priest's entire family that got killed because of David's lie. And so, Abithar now has a son Jonathan. So in verse 28, remember, I'll wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abithar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem and stayed there. David was climbing the slope of Mount of Olives, weeping as he ascended, his head covered, and he was walking barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they ascended. Then someone reported to David, Hithophel, who is among the conspirators with Absalom. So he was one of David's advisors. Lord, David pleaded, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And that's exactly what happened. Zadok the priest and uh, uh, Abathar, they go back and um, they are now informers for David. And they send their sons, Jonathan and that other guy, as runners to run out and to go tell David what's taking place later. When they overhear what's happening in the counsel that David's going to follow. Alright? In the meantime, David's prayer is answered and the Lord turns the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness. And he puts another, David sends another counselor back and says, you tell him, you give him bad counsel. And so this counselor tells him, this is what the Lord says, do this and all these things. Tells him this big bad plan. Lies about it being a good plan. And so Absalom decides to follow this bad plan. Which was presented as a good plan. And in the end, it ends up with David coming, being able to come back. Um, look at verse uh, chapter 17 in verse 1. Well, in, in the first seven, uh, 14 verses is where that takes place, what I just told you. Look at verse 15. There's more lies here. Hushai then told the priests, Zadok and Bethar, this is what Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and this is what I advise. Now send someone quickly and tell David, don't spend the night at the wilderness ford, but be sure to cross over the Jordan or the king, and all the people with him will be devoured. This is the message you're supposed to take. Don't spend the night, run. Okay. So Jonathan and Ahimaaz were staying in, in Rugal, where a servant girl would come and pass along information to them. They, in turn, would go and inform King David because they dared not be seen entering the city. However, a young man did see them and informed Absalom. So the two left quickly and came to the house of a man, and so they're going to David. And they came to this man, Bahuram. He had a well in his courtyard, and they climbed down into it. Then his wife took the cover Placed it over the mouth of the well and scattered grain on it so nobody would know anything. Absalom's servant came to the woman at the house and asked, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? They passed by toward the water, the woman replied to them. Lie. The men searched but did not find them, so they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, Ahimaaz and Jonathan climbed out of the well and went and informed King David. They told him, Get up and immediately forward the river for Ahithophel has given this advice against you. So David and all the people went with him got up, crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, there was no one who had not crossed the Jordan. Because she lied and spared their life, the message came through to David. David's life is spared and ends up coming back and taking the throne again of Jerusalem. Go to Second Kings. Just keep page into the right in your Bible. Second Kings 8. There's a couple of verses there we can look at. We might not have any uh, worship music tonight because it's important that we finish this. I don't want to leave you part way through it. <clears throat> in 2 Kings, this is the prophet Elisha in, in chapter 8. See, some of you just became more uncomfortable because we're not doing what we usually do. All right. The good news is the parking lot is paved, so you can't stone me. Verse 7. Elisha came to Damascus while King Benahad of Aram was sick. And the king was told, this is the prophet Elisha, king was told, the man of God has come here. So the king said to Haziel, take a gift with you and go meet the man of God. Inquire of the Lord through him, will I recover from this sickness? Haziel went to meet Elisha, taking with him a gift, 40 camel loads of all the finest products of Damascus. When he came and stood before him, he said, your son King Benehad of Aram has sent me to ask you, will I recover from this sickness? Elisha told him, go say to him, you are sure to recover. But the Lord has shown me that he is sure to die. Then he stared steadily at him until he was ashamed. The man of God wept, and Haziel asked, Why is my Lord weeping? He replied, Because I know the evil you will do to the people of Israel. You will set their fortresses on fire. You will kill their young men with the sword. You will dash their children to pieces. You will rip open their pregnant women. Hazael said, How could your servant, a mere dog, do such a mighty deed? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will be king over Aram. Haziel left Elisha, went to his master, who asked him, What did Elisha say to you? He responded, He told me, You are sure to recover. The next day, Hazael took a heavy cloth, dipped it in water, and spread it over the king's face. Benahad died, and Haziel reigned in his place. Now, Elisha did not lie for any sort of self-benefit. But he did lie for a greater purpose. Go over to Second Chronicles. A couple books to the right. Second Chronicles 18. Start in verse 1. Now Jehoshaphat had riches and honor and abundance and he made an alliance with Ahab through marriage. Then after some years he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria. Remember Ahab was, he says he was the most wicked king of all of any of the kings ever. I mean he's like vile. So then after some years he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria. Ahab slaughtered many sheep and goats and cattle for him and for the people who were with him. And he persuaded him to attack Ramoth Gilead. For Israel's king Ahab asked Judah's king Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? He replied to him, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will be with you in the battle. But Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, First, please ask what the Lord's will is. So the king of Israel gathered the prophets, 400 men, and asked them, Should we go to the Ramoth-Gilead for war, or should I refrain? They replied, March up, and God will hand it over to the king. But Jehoshaphat asked, isn't there a prophet of the Lord here anymore? Let's ask him. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man who can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, because he never prophesies good about me. But only disaster. He is Micaiah, son of Imla. The king shouldn't say that, Jehoshaphat replied. Remember, Jehoshaphat feared the Lord and served the Lord. Ahab did not. So the king of Israel called an officer and said, Hurry and get Micaiah, son of Imla. Now the king of Israel and king Jehoshaphat of Judah clothed in royal attire were sitting on his own throne each on his own throne. They were sitting on the threshing floor at the entrance to Samaria's gate and all the prophets were prophesying in front of them. Then Zedekiah son of Chennai made iron horns and said this is what the Lord says you will gore the Armeans with these until they are finished off. And all the prophets were prophesying the same saying march up to Ramoth Gilead and succeed for the Lord will hand it over to the king. The messenger who went to call Micaiah, instructed him, Look, the words of the prophets are unanimously in favor for the king. So let your words be like theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, I will say whatever my God says. So he went to the king and the king asked him, Micaiah, should we go to Ramoth-Gilead for war or should I refrain? Micaiah said, March up and succeed for they will be handed over to you. Apparently, now this is a lie, but apparently, he is using sarcasm because the king knows he's lying. But the king said to him, How many times must I make you swear not to tell me anything but the truth in the name of the Lord? Apparently, this isn't the first time he's come and lied to the king. Yay, yeah, yea," thus saith the Lord. Do it. Well, that's what you want to hear. Right? How many times do I have to tell you that? Okay, fine. I'll tell you what the Lord says. So Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills, like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, They have no master. Let each return home in peace. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you he never prophesied good about me, but only disaster? Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and the whole heavenly army was standing at his right hand and at his left hand. The Lord said, Who will entice King Ahab of Israel to march up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one was saying this, and another was saying that. Then a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord asked him, how? So he said, I will go and become a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then the Lord said, you will entice him and also prevail, go and do that. Now this is obviously an evil spirit, and if you are not familiar with this, if you read the book of Revelations, you'll discover that evil spirits used to, fallen angels used to have access to heaven, but they've been cast out when Jesus came, and all that took place, they've been thrown out, they no longer have access to heaven, it says they've been thrown to the earth. But apparently an evil spirit stepped up, said what he was going to do, and the Lord's like, yep, that'll work, go ahead. So in verse 22, Now you see the Lord has put a lying spirit into the mouth of these prophets of yours, and the Lord has announced disaster against you. So then the lying, they have an argument about it, and in the end, he says, Throw him in jail till we come back. Well, Ahab didn't come back. But the lying spirit was permitted to achieve God's purpose in judgment. How about in Ezekiel 14.9? The Lord told Ahab, the prophet Ezekiel. He says, But if the prophet is deceived and speaks a message, it was I, the Lord, who deceived that prophet. I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. In Second Thessalonians, this is New Covenant, chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, it says this, The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie. So that all will be condemned. Those who did not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. The prophet Jeremiah, he... uh, had an interesting thing. This is another prophet of God. Now, in all these cases that I'm reading to you, notice the conspicuous absence of God correcting, reproving them for this, telling them they should not have done it. You know, fine, I'm going to overlook it this time. None of that. Just, Just strangely absent. Notice what happened when David took Bathsheba and murdered someone. Well, God was not quiet on that one, was He? So Jeremiah the prophet... You know, he's been prophesying things about the Israel and Judah and all these things that a whole bunch of people don't like. The king don't like it. In verse 14 of chapter 38, says, King Zedekiah sent for the prophet Jeremiah and received him at the third entrance of the Lord's temple. The king said to Jeremiah, I'm going to ask you something. Don't hide anything from me. Jeremiah replied to Zedekiah, if I tell you, you will kill me, won't you? Besides, if I give you advice, you won't listen to me anyway. King Zedekiah swore to Jeremiah in private, as the Lord lives, who has given us this life, I will not kill you or hand you over to these men who intend to take your life. There was a whole group of men that were trying to actively to kill Jeremiah. So in verse 17, Jeremiah therefore said to Jedekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of the armies of God of Israel says. If indeed you surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then you will live. This city will not be burned and you and your household will survive. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city will be handed over to the Chaldeans and they will burn it and you yourself will not escape from them. But King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am worried about the Judeans who have defected to the Chaldeans. They may hand me over to the Judeans to abuse me. They will not hand you over, Jeremiah replied. Obey the Lord in what I am telling you so that it may go well for you and you can live. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the verdict that the Lord has shown me. All the women who remain in the palace of Zedekiah's king will be brought out to the officials of the king of Babylon and will say to you, Your trusted friends misled you and overcame you. Your feet sank into the mire and they deserted you. All your wives and children will be brought out to the Chaldeans. You yourself will not escape from them for you will be seized by the king Babylon and the city will burn. Then Zedekiah, remember, he's the king. Jeremiah is the prophet of God. Zedekiah warned Jeremiah, don't let anyone know about this conversation or you will die. The officials may hear that I have spoken with you and come and demand of you, tell us what you said to the king. Don't hide anything from us and we won't kill you. Also, what did the king say to you? These other officials, these princes are going to come and ask you this. If they do, verse 26, tell them, I was bringing before the king my petition that he not return me to the house of Jonathan to die there. All the officials did come to Jeremiah and they questioned him. He reported the exact words to them the king had commanded and they quit speaking with him because the conversation had not been overheard. Jeremiah remained in the guard's courtyard until the day Jerusalem was captured and he was there when it happened. All right, in John chapter seven, we're we're getting close. Don't lose hope that I'll go all night. Jeremiah, I mean John chapter seven, speaking of Jesus, here in reading in verse one. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near. That's the festival of booths or festival of tabernacles was near. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your works and that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. At this point, his brothers didn't believe in him. Jesus told them, My time has not yet arrived, for your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about about it, that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I am not going up to the festival yet because my time has not yet fully come. Now, some of the translators argue about whether or not that yet after the word festival on the screen. I'm not going up to the festival yet. Some translators argue that's not supposed to be there. Others say that it is. But for our discussion tonight, let's just say that it's supposed to be there, okay? So I'm not going up to the festival yet, because my time has not yet fully come. Verse 9, after he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. Jesus himself used deception to trick them into thinking he's not there. Jesus, the truth, the way, the light, secretly went. Why would He do something secretly? Well, so they don't know. So that they think He's not there. I mean, how much obvious, more obvious can we make it? He didn't lie. He just said, I'm not going yet. But He ends up going, but secretly, incognito. Matthew 10 Verse 16 says this. Okay, in the, first, in the first 15 verses is where he summons the 12 disciples. He gives them power over unclean spirits and sicknesses and he sends them out and he tells them, hey, look, lay hands on people, heal them. And then he says, you know, some people are going to receive you, some won't. And let your peace be on a house that receives you. And the ones that don't, you know, have your peace come with you, shake off the dust of your feet. All this. It's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than the place that rejects you guys. And then in verse 16 he says, so that, this is the context. I, I tell all that to you. It's, it's the Great Commission, right? And uh, he gives, that's the context of what he says next. Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Does a sheep stand a chance among a wolf or a of wolves? No. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as harmless as doves. These, this word shrewd means, some translations say wise, but it really it means shrewd and cunning. Shrewd or cunning as a serpent and as innocent or pure as a dove. As simple, as believing as a dove. Doves are really easily tricked. Serpents, not so much. In fact, usually serpents are the ones tricking the dove. So, what is Jesus telling them? Be as shrewd as serpents. What do we know about serpents? I mean, Satan's called the serpent, the deceiver. Paul said in Corinthians, he says, the serpent deceived Eve. That's what he was known for, being a deceiver. So he's saying be as shrewd as a serpent, I mean, no matter how you cut it, it doesn't turn into Sunday school material in a good way. Be as shrewd as a serpent, but as innocent in your motive as a dove. As pure in your motive as a dove. And then he goes on and says all these things, be aware of them because they will hand you over to the local courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak for you will be given what to say at that hour because it isn't you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you brother will betray a brother to death. And a father, his child, children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to another. For truly, I tell you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they called the head of the household, Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. So let's make this applicable to today, to you and I. Actually, let's not yet. Let's, let's go back a number of years. Let's go to World War II. What about Cory ten Boom? Some of you know the story of Cory ten Boom. They were believers. They hid a lot of Jews, saved a lot of lives, lied outright many times to protect those lives. Do you have any Jews here? No. And they were hiding, a whole bunch of them over in the corner. And I don't know, how does God look at that when she gets to heaven and stands before the Lord and is he going to say, you know what? You saved a lot of lives, innocent lives. I mean, I hate the shedding of innocent blood, but you know what I hate too is lying. Go to hell. Is that how God looks at that? I don't believe He does. What about a police officer or FBI that goes undercover to catch criminals? They pretend to be one thing, to be able to bring justice and to stop the evildoer. Are those people just beyond The mercy and plan of God? I don't think so. How about David um, Daliden? I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. David Daliden. He was the one that was behind those videos that exposed Planned Parenthood. He went in undercover, pretended to be an organization that is buying baby parts. Took all those videos of Planned Parenthood talking about how they're selling baby parts videoed it illegally because the law of our land says you're not allowed to do that. He's actually, I mean, he's, he's really suffered for it too because they took him to court and because he broke laws and he's in trouble for it. I mean, how twisted is that? That he's in trouble for exposing the fact that they were harvesting baby organs while the babies were alive for profit. It doesn't get more evil than that. And he lies and pretends to be someone else to video and get evidence of this. And he's the one who goes to prison and pays the price. Or how about those Bible smugglers? You know, making it, making it be now. You know, I've, I hear, I've heard stories of people lying about smuggling Bibles. I've also heard stories of, of guards opening up backpacks. I have friends that took Bibles into places like North Korea and Vietnam and other places and opening backpacks that were full of Bibles and like God just blinded them where they couldn't see what they were. Closed it back up and sent them on their way. And then there's others. See, here's what I want you to take home tonight. Whatever you do, do in faith. If if your persuasion is, no matter what, my conscience would never allow me to say something that was not true, okay, then do it in faith and believe that God's going to protect you. If your persuasion is is that, well, I would tell them I don't have anything because it's for the purposes of God, and I'm going to do that in faith and believe I'm going to get through, then by all means, do it in faith. Whatever you do, do it in faith. And don't be judgmental of your brother on what he did. But you do you. And we're going to read Scripture about that in a little bit. What about other reasons for keeping us out of the nations? Let's make it really applicable to us. How about vaccination cards can't go to the nations if you're not vaccinated well I got a question for you so do we just not go okay now many of these I don't know of any nations that still require a vaccination to enter maybe there are some but I don't know of any where still okay well praise God we're here um, you, can, you can return home as a U.S. citizen, obviously, without getting one. Um, but so here's the deal. That vaccination is, I think, is just pure evil. I think it's poison, straight up poison. It's designed from poison, and it is not designed with good purposes in mind. The only way I would ever get the vaccination is if I was overpowered and held down because I won't get it, Period. Now, there is the scripture in, in Mark chapter 16 that says that if you should drink anything deadly, that it will not harm you. If you have taken the vaccine, then this is what I recommend for you. Take the scripture and stand on it. That it's not going to harm me. It's not going to harm me. And if you read it in context, it is in the context of actually taking the gospel. But notice what it does not say. If any of you intentionally drink poison. The idea is though you did it inadvertently if you drink poison. If you add in that it was intentional, you're adding that. That's not what it says. It just says that they're going to pick up snakes, the the, the demonic. That is intentional. And that it's not going to harm them. And that if they should drink anything poisonous, meaning to me that means it was unknown. Someone tried to poison them. That it's not going to harm them. So now let's just apply this to today. So are we going to say, I'm not going to take a vaccine because that violates me honoring the temple of God, putting poison into it. And it's akin to tempting God by the devil told Jesus, jump off the temple because Psalm 91 says that the angels are going to protect you and you won't dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus called that tempting God. So to me, getting a vaccine and saying, well, the Lord's going to protect me, to me, that would be tempting God. If you see it differently, that's okay. I don't criticize you at all. Make sure you do it in faith. My faith wouldn't allow me to do that because I'm knowingly tempting Him. It's my personal viewpoint on it. On the other side of it, so am I going to just stand there and go, okay, so I guess I can't take the nation, the gospel to the nations anymore, so the Great Commission no longer is applicable. Not going because I'm not getting a shot because that violates the Word of God violates honoring my temple or his temple the one that both of us live in and so therefore I'm just not going to do what he told me to do and go to the nations or would this be a case where you go present them with a vaccination card and go to the nations so well, how could you do that that's lying so which is worse not obeying his command or lying to obey his command you have to decide now, praise God, I haven't had to go to any nation that required a vaccine when I was there. Um, when I went to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro, um, there, they, we'd been praying about it. And two, three weeks before I went, they, they withdrew the uh, requirement. And so that was great. Um, and But my point is is that don't think, you, you might say, well, yeah, well, we're not faced with that now because they withdrew it. Oh, that was just the beginning. It's going to get worse. There's going to be other things. Just read Revelations. You're not going to be able to buy or sell. So where's your faith? And what are you going to do? Why is this important to examine? Because if you don't cross the bridge before you get there and know that here's how I will handle it. And maybe you say, well, here's how I will handle that situation is what the Lord prompts me in the moment. Great. You've crossed the bridge. You know how you're going to handle it in that moment. You're going to rely on the Lord. Maybe some of you say, well, I'd just get a vaccination card and go. Okay, you know how you're going to handle that situation. But no, the day is coming where we'll be faced with more and more of these types of decisions. I think there's a big difference as we saw in all these examples of people that lied for self-gain versus for the greater good or another reason. I want to close tonight and in reading Romans chapter 14 to you. And I think this is very, very applicable to the subject we're talking about because I know that some here, I know there's people here tonight that have no problem with a fake vaccination card. I also know there's people here tonight that said in my conscience I could never do that. All right? Neither one of you should criticize the other. Neither one of you should have a problem with the other. Just you do you. And if this is how the Lord is ministering, don't override peace. Okay? If the Lord's leading you a certain way, yield to that. Here in Romans 14, it talks about eating meat and holy days. And I just want you to see how Paul addressed this. This isn't the only place he talked about not eating meat, but in each place he talks about it, he says the same things, just worded differently. In verse 1, Welcome anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat. And one who does not eat must not judge one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord he stands or falls, and he will stand, because the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. You know, the whole argument about should we get together on Saturday or Sunday. And If you're listening by internet or it's your first time here tonight, then certainly we meet on Saturday because of convenience to our landlord. Right? Because the Ethiopian congregation asks us to. And we pay rent to them. They own the building. So that's why we meet. On Saturday night. Not because we think the day is more holy. Or anything, of, anything like that. It says one person judges one day. To be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day. To be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day. Observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats. Eats for the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat. It is for the Lord that he does not eat it. And he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives. None of us lives for himself. And no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. So whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Verse 9. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you... Why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, now he's going to talk about the law of love and this is how we, this is how we live. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So he's saying there's no food, period, that's unclean in and of itself. He's persuaded of this. means at one point he wasn't. But now he's persuaded of this. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and everything that is not from faith is sin. So back to the question. Is it always wrong to lie or to deceive? I read you 357 Bible verses in answer to this question. I'm not answering your question. But between you and the Lord, you be the judge, you decide. What I would say, is do live according to Romans 14. Right? Not in condemnation of each other. You can stand with me. We're just going to go ahead and um, close the service as I've kept you so very late. Thank you for being patient and attentive. Even if you had to stand up, stay awake. Hallelujah. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you said where two or three are gathered, that you're there in the midst, and we're grateful for your presence tonight. And we yield ourselves to you completely. And I ask You, Lord, to continue to be our teacher and bring to life Your Word and Your purposes and Your plan and Your will and and the places in Scripture that seem clouded to us or that we don't understand, Father, that You would give us revelation and light on these things, that we might have clarity and there be no confusion in us or among us in Jesus' name. So be blessed as you go. The peace of God is upon you and with you. And you are... His agents, every day, every minute. And amen. There's a time of fellowship downstairs. Everyone is invited. And one way that we love God is by...
2: Welcome, everyone. <laughs> God bless you. Thank you so much for coming. The Church of the Word International, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Praise the Lord. Glad to be here tonight. Yes. Me too. You know, I never take it for granted. Not one moment when I can gather with like, like-minded and like-hearted believers. To me, it's Some of the most special times in life. And this is one of them. Psalms 145 was penned by David. And it's like an accumulation of all his psalms. And it's an exhortation of how important it is to consistently praise God. And he says in verse 2, I will praise him every day. He starts off, I will exalt you, O God, my King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Do you know we get to do that forever and ever? Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And I will meditate. That's musing, stopping and thinking about. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Aren't you glad? Slow to anger, great in mercy, the Lord is good to all. And all your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of your glory and your kingdom. In verse 19, I mean, it's a long psalm. It's really worth reading tonight when you get home. But he says, he will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him. Isn't that beautiful? Tuck that in in the quarter of your heart. The Lord preserves all who love him. Well, we have much to be grateful for, don't we? As a child of God, we've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Our security in the Lord, our eternity is forward, it's our future. We have so much to be grateful for and thankful for, amen. So let's stand together as family tonight. Aren't you glad you're here with your family who loves you, supports you, is here for you, amen. And let's praise him. Think of some things as you're singing of what you can be thankful for tonight and what the Lord's done for you. Are ever on you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the beginning and the end. You are everything in between for us. You have overcome. The grave is empty. We serve a risen, alive, Hallelujah. one and only God, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And in that act of obedience, He redeemed mankind to himself. And for those of us who have said yes, yes and amen, we we are overcomers. We come into that overcoming, victorious position that the Lord Jesus Christ bought and paid such a hefty price for. Amen. Our future is bright. Bright. It's good. It's full of goodness because he's in our future he's now here but he's in our future so turn a neighbor and say i am so glad that you're here tonight and you know just how much i love you
0: Good evening. good evening. How are y'all doing? It's good to be here with you all tonight. We would like to welcome anyone that's here for the very first time to Church of the Word International. So you raise your hand so we can give you a hand clap and make you feel welcome. Anyone their first time here tonight? Right over here. Okay, well, don't be bashful. It's all right. We're glad you're with us. <laughs> I trust you'll be blessed with us tonight. All right, well, we're going to prepare to return the tithes. so if you need a cash envelope for your giving, you can raise your hand. If you're giving by checks, you can make it out to CWI, and if you're giving by credit card, we appreciate when all of the blanks are filled out. So I like how Karen said, our eyes are on you, Jesus, because that was kind of what I had on, on the inside to bring out tonight. So turn to Psalms 104. It is so important we understand we are not self-sufficient. Amen? Everything is upheld by the might of his hand. He holds everything together. We are not self-sufficient. And I wanted to read some scriptures. I'm, just, I'm going to read a, a big chunk here, verses 10 through, um, 10 through 23. I might jump around a little bit here. But don't let these words just bounce off your eardrums. Let it create a picture on the inside. And trust me, it'll be better than blue bunnies. But it's going to be good. I want you to get a picture of something here. (laughs) A good picture. (laughs) The psalmist starts out praising the Lord. He's telling him how great he is. How he's full of majesty and splendor. And how he makes the clouds his chariot. And he rides on the winds. And he sets the earth on its foundations. And they'll not be moved. And it talks about, he says how he, um, about the waters and how he set a boundary that they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. And now here's where I want you to start listening. Because he is holding all creation together. Our eyes are on you, Jesus. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters, they sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. See he's feeding the wild animals. He's watering them. He's caring for them. They're not just animalistic instinct, just, just no who put it there? He did. He's taking care of them. He makes grass grow for the cattle. And plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, so no he's the one causing all this to grow, you know, and maybe we'll get to this in a future um, service, but you know that rich man, the, the parable that Jesus told about the rich man where his ground produced that abundant crop, why didn't he think about this? Hey, the Lord cost my ground to produce an abundant crop instead of i i i all throughout that so. He makes plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth, food to bring, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts. Now there's a phrase that'll mess up people's theology. <laughs> I mean, doesn't the Bible know that Christians don't drink wine? Or, or, or maybe that's not quite right. <laughs> it says, Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, There, the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the hyrax. See, he's saying all this creation, everything he's created, but he's the one bringing it. He's the one sustaining it. He's he's the source. He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. He's feeding the lions. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labor until evening. So you're seeing this, that he is the one that waters. He's the one that feeds. He's the one that makes the resources. He's the one that brings the resources. He's the one that's holding all of this together. We are not self-sufficient. It's in him that we live, and we move, and we have our being. Verse 27 says, All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. All creatures look to him. We are not self-sufficient. When you give it to them, they gather it up. Also, we have a part. So he gives it to us, we gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. He's a good provider. He sustains us. And when we return the tithe, we're demonstrating we believe this. You know, Jacob, when he had that dream there at the place called Bethel, and um, he got up and he said, you know, if you will be, if you will provide food for me, if you will uh... Clothe me and keep me safe and help you know all these things and be my god you know as a testimony of this i'm gonna return the tithe i'm gonna give a tenth so that's why we say you know this demonstrates we believe god is our source when we tithe and so if if you believe that uh, let's obey the word let's go ahead and fasten our eyes on the source and if you're needing something if you're needing provision or in lack in some area Grab a hold of the word and believe him that he provides, that he is looking to put into your hand provision, looking to put into your hand the good things. All right? As we seek his kingdom first, he will add all those needs that he already knows that we need to us. Amen? All right, let's uh, take a hold of your tithe and your offering and let's pray. Father, we're so thankful tonight that we can look to you, and that we don't have to do it all, that we don't have to figure it all out, but that we can look to you, and you're good for it. You're such a good provider, and so we just thank you for the resources you brought to us, for the jobs, for the careers, for the income, for all the good things you place in our hand, and we're, we're thankful and, and cheerful to return the tithe to you and just count on you in this way so I just ask you Lord to bring in any provision any needs that are people are lacking here tonight Lord that you would provide and that you would bring it in as you have promised to so we just thank you for prospering your people according to your word in Jesus name and amen and the ushers can pass the baskets and the people will give to the Lord in the bulletin, we have a number of uh, things to mention here. Ron Kahn will be here with us this week, Thursday and Friday morning, 10 a.m. to noon, and they're going to meet in the cafe. So that's here at the church. Also, free PA is this week um, on Thursday night at Loxley's in, in Lancaster. So the doors open at 6.30, the meetings at 7, and uh, Brian Cutler will be there for a town hall-style meeting. So I would encourage you to come, bring your questions, and uh, participate with that. On that note, Monday will be the last chance to register to vote if you're not registered. And I would really encourage you, do not shirk your responsibility and the freedom that we have to vote. Let's vote in righteousness, let's vote uh, Holy Spirit-led, and be a part of the answer. Amen. Amen. Some of you may know that Robin Ginder's fa- um father went home to be with Jesus, so love on them, encourage them, and I'm sure heaven's a little brighter tonight for Robin, amen? All right.
1: Alan, would you co- Alan Erickson, would you come, and I'm going to, we're going to pray over Alan. He is getting ready to go to Tanzania, and um, he is going to be, me- how many of you uh, know Stephen and John and Mirabella, or you know who I'm talking about from Iraq and Syria? Well, his parents live in Tanzania, and when Alan was in Iraq, he met them, and they invited him to come minister in Tanzania, so he is going to be ministering with the Mirabellas, but the Mirabellas, you know, their parents, the Mirabellas, all right? So, uh, so stretch out your hands to him, and let's pray. Father, I thank You that You are all-knowing and all-powerful and that there's nothing that's caught You by surprise. You've seen this trip from before Eric was even born or before Alan was even born. Thank You, Father, that You have arranged. You've arranged the place, the time, the Word that You're bringing out. And Lord, I ask as Alan preaches Your Word and as he ministers Your love, that you would stretch forth your hand to do signs and wonders and miracles would pre- be performed at the name of Jesus. Lord, I ask you to bring people into these meetings that have an ear to hear. I ask you for divine strength and stamina in Alan as he ministers. And, and that you would give him a word that is, is welling up within him and pouring out of him. In a tremendous way. That would bring you glory. Father I thank you for safety. I thank you that every bill of Allen's is paid. And that you are bringing him back home again. In Jesus name. And amen.